welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, I'm back. Another Knock On Podcast, one day after another podcast, so it's like Christmas at Halloween time, depending on when you're listening to this. But uh, hey, I've got a bunch of questions that are overflow questions and some questions that I've seen on social media. Um, Some of them I was hoping to answer in the last podcast, but EJ and I went down so many different roads together that... uh, we didn't even get close to getting on these types of subjects. So uh, that was really cool. And I look forward to having him back. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing him here in a few, few weeks when he gets here. And we're going to do a live podcast for all of you again, been tons of great response for that from that last podcast. And there's uh, so much more I want to talk to you about that. But um, so this first question here is actually um, from a, posts that I made on Instagram and every now and then people just make random questions in my Instagram feed and there's times where I see some that stick out that I'd like to talk about um, especially if it's ones that I haven't talked about on other occasions. So this first one is from Joe Michael Russell and he's saying listen to the last podcast on shooting the evolution with bows that have a rock solid back wall and was wondering if you thought a hinge release would be better to shoot on these types of setups. Um, So what he's talking about is I had discussed on compound bows when you draw them back and that string stops. Some of them have a very, very solid wall and some of them actually have a little bit of give and, uh, Of course, I didn't put my phone on airplane mode, so my text will go crazy. But um, the cams that have a real super, super solid back wall, you know, if you're trying to actively pull through them, depending on your style of release or how you have that set, there's certainly times where, you, you know, if you're pulling against something, that hard and it doesn't have a little bit of give i personally like a little bit of give i know that you know back in the day um when the hoyt cam and a halfs first came out they didn't have as solid of a wall um as some cams that were on the market and especially they didn't have as hard of a wall as like their the spiral cam which was another option of cam for the hoyts at the time but there was a lot of people that just really enjoyed being able to pull and have that little bit of give so that they could almost have a better feel that they were in the valley of the cam and the cam wasn't trying to take that string away from you. Um, having that solid wall, and especially if you have a lower let off, a super solid wall with a short valley can be very demanding to shoot some archers really like that Um, i know steve anderson uh, big cat who just won the world field championship this past month 
he shoots a very demanding bow. Um, for me, per, I know that even with how much I shoot and what I know about archery, I wouldn't be able to to go with Steve's bow during a full tournament because I know that there's times where I, you know, I'll start to break down, I'll get a little weak in my shot. There's certainly times where, you know, if I start to feel some nervousness, even if it's for a shot or two, uh, before I get myself corrected, I know that that type of setup is, you know, it's more likely to cause me problems in something that could be a little bit slower, but also more forgiving. Um, The nice thing about some of the newer bows that have a super solid wall is that they also have a little bit higher let off. So it's not as tough to keep them at full draw, so to speak. Now, you're asking specifically about would it be better for you to shoot a hinge. Depending on how you shoot, the hinge release will really depend on whether or not that could be accurate. Now, back when I shot a hinge release, I shot mine, and personally the way I feel like most people should shoot theirs is by relaxing the index finger and getting your shot to go with a hinge by continually pulling against the wall but also being able to relax because that that taught me how to recognize whether I was really tense in a moment of shooting. Um, if I was really tight and everything was tight, my hands were tr- tight, my fists were tight, then that hinge release really would not activate because I wasn't able to keep my hand flat and keep my my wrist or my hand position the same and I wasn't able to relax that index finger and allow that hinge release to pivot around the middle finger. Um, I guess I thought I had done some videos or maybe... I think maybe when I did a live coaching session, which I posted on the Knock On Archery Facebook uh, YouTube page, I did a live feed on through the Knock On TV Facebook page, and then I posted it on the YouTube page after the feed. But I'm sure I showed you how to shoot different releases, and I'm gonna have to go out and do that today. Um, I've, I told I told the bow junkie guys that I would do a video for them on release aids and proper way to shoot them. So this will be a really good addition to that. I'll I'm gonna work on that and get that done for everyone. But I personally like to shoot with the relaxation method because it also doesn't force me to have to move more when I'm pulling against a really hard cam, if I have a super hard cam. I think that if you're shooting a release the right way, you shouldn't necessarily be pulling yourself completely off the target if you have a super hard back wall. But in saying that, some people have a lot more preload meaning when they get to full draw, they're kind of holding a lot more tension there, and you can almost see that tension through their body. And that's because some people haven't really shot enough to really get an understanding of 
what your preload at full draw should be and how to make sure that you still maintain pressure against the back wall, but you're not also building so much pressure that you're allowing the simple rules of physics to go against you, meaning, you know, for every action, there should be an equal and opposite reaction. So if you're building this incredible amount of tension in the back part of your body, it's really hard not to have that same tension pushing forward on that bow. So it's like, you know, if if you're moving a whole bunch in the back or really trying to pull that hard in the back, it's going to be super hard for you to maintain perfect steadiness in the front. And that's why a lot of people really talk about aiming the bow and how well the bow sits and they set up their releases to where they almost wait for that release to fire. Uh, I remember when I used to shoot with Chris White from England, Chris would, he really liked to have a bow that just held good and aimed good. And I'm pretty sure I can say the same about, you know, a shooter like Rio Wild, who just puts an incredible amount of weight on that bow, just wants it to hold steady. And then he's just manipulating or creating a fist and not having the tension through the back to be dynamic through the shot. He's manipulating the release so that it fires without having to put too much dynamic force against the back. Whereas if you have, say, an evolution release, you are you do have to learn this, this fine line of being against the wall and having some preload to where you can safely let off the safety and then start that pull and the release go off before you're having to increase so much pressure that you are moving yourself off the target. Um, there's When I start with people with the evolution releases or now it's going to be the silverback release, I always start with the weight of the release higher and it will be much tougher to hold perfectly still at that point. And the reason I do that is because I really want you to focus on learning your preload. And then, so when you let off that, you know, just how you, you get to a point where you let off that safety. And even though it's set tight, you're able to pull through that release pretty simple and you really focus on the back half of the body first. You have to really get a good understanding of if you're not in position, that release is very difficult to get to go off. So you, your body adapts very fast and you learn exactly what you need to do for that release to be easier. And once you've spent a month or two learning that process, at that point, as a coach, I normally start to take that release and reduce the tension so that you can start to get that exact same feel, but also start to really stabilize and minimize the movement in the front. So I can't say that a hinge release is better. I would argue that it's that I would argue that all releases are the same if you know how to shoot them right. That was my point in that other video. I can shoot an index finger, a hinge, a, tar a thumb trigger, or 
um, attention-activated release all exactly the same. But it's really learning that feel and that understanding of the back wall. You know, if you look at um, Matthews, for example, probably one of the most winning bows in Matthews history was the Conquest and uh, also the Apex. And I know a lot of Matthews shooters that still say, man, I wish I wish that bow... I wish I could still shoot that bow in a tournament. And what's funny about that is that original Max Cam, if you pull it back and feel it today, it has a it has a good stop, but it doesn't have a perfectly rock solid wall. You could you can actually flex the limbs and there's give in the whole system when you hit the stop and you pull on it a little more. But people shot that really good because they could adjust their preload, or if they were off in their preload from one day to the next, they were still able to be consistent with it. So there's a fine line there. That's my personal opinion. I think um, I need to do this video so I can show everyone the differences, but it really depends on how you're set up. If you're set up to just be an aimer, and all you're going to do is aim, then I would say you're, you could be better off with the hinge if you're shooting it with the relaxation method of relaxing that index finger. Um, I'm not a big advocate of the clicker in any hinge style release. I don't personally like the clicker. I think if the clicker happened um, at a point where it was just allowed, the, allowed you to be secure of you drawing it back without it going off, but then have plenty of travel after the clicker to where you, you know, you had to manipulate that release. But when the clicker is right on the edge of it firing, I think a lot of people start to anticipate that click. And I've seen a lot of people go down a nasty road because of the clickers. Uh, Next question here is, one from I think it's from that same post, but this was from Dave Leff, and he says, um, "Let's see." He says, "I was wondering if you could speak on hunting from a tree stand. First year here, and I find myself getting extremely anxious sitting up there for hours on end. How do you stay focused? How much movement is too much movement? And you, how do you survive an all-day sit in the stand?" I've logged over 70 hours in the stand already with little sightings and I'm having a hard time keeping a positive outlook. So here's the thing, man. When you're putting in that kind of time, um, well, one, for me, I mentally prepare when deer season's coming and I know that when the time's right, I'm, I am in the stand for sometimes 30 consecutive days for daylight till dark but I also have 11 months to tell myself that I'm going to do that and um, the other thing too is I allow myself to get hungry this is a very similar mental approach as what I do with target archery when I would have a big event in target archery or a big tournament that I really wanted to achieve my best at I would make sure to to take some rest away from archery so that I was really excited to do it again. 
so I just got through um, doing quite a bit of hunting out west, and it was a lot of hunting. It was a lot of elk hunting, and it, you know, luckily I finally got an elk on my second to the last day. But I was getting to the point as well where I was starting to get burned out. There's no doubt about it. And between Alberta and South Dakota and Montana and back to Montana, you know, those then Oklahoma, I was, it was getting really tough as well. And here's the deal. If you go elk hunting the day it opens and they're not bugling for another 16 or 18 days, then you're going to get frustrated because you're going to be out there. You're not going to hear elk. You're not going to see elk. And that's just the reality. They're not doing their thing yet. You know, if I went bear hunting and went out and wanted to do spot and stock bear, but I started doing it at the end of June when all the foliage is up and uh, all the bears are nocturnal at that point, then it would be extremely frustrating to be a bear hunter. However, if I go bear hunting at the first part of May, where most of them are out of hibernation, the foliage isn't on the leaves yet, and they're still really needing to eat consistently to keep their digestive systems moving, then you're going to see bears. So with elk, you know, I don't head out to my spots in out west for elk until I know that time's right. Now, I do go to Alberta for the opening week every year because I feel like there is advantage to that opening week for animals really at any point because they're not expecting hunters yet. And a lot of times you can get lucky on something that has a pattern. So if you knew that a particular deer was in a pattern then I would say it's time well spent. However, if you're just going out and hunting random, then the non-rut is going to be a very frustrating time. You either mentally need to know, which I can tell you right now, if I hunted this time of year, I would just tell myself that... um, I'm going to, I more or less expect to not see anything, but during the right time of the year, I'm excited because I know anything can happen. So spending an incredible amount of stand right now or time in the stand right now, which is the first, you know, middle part of October, which there's a very common term, the October lull. And it's called that because Big bucks are not day walkers yet. They're nocturnal, and you're going to see probably does with fawns. You're going to see fawns that really aren't used to waiting all day to eat, and there's going to be does and fawns. You're going to see something like that, but you're just not, most likely, not going to see big bucks. This is a time where I really weigh out that it's probably I do more damage than I do good by going into my spots during a time where it's just not going to produce. So I take this time to tweak some stands to really kind of get my equipment organized again and to get prepared. I got done hunting out west and um, 
you know, I went to Oklahoma for their first four days of, of whitetail season. But as soon as that first four days was over, I could already see a difference in the movement of the deer. Um, plus you also just had a full moon, which also adds to the problem, especially mid October with the full moon right in the middle of it is, you know, you're going to have a lot of nighttime movement. So pick and choose your times wisely. I can tell you, depending on where you're at, I know that here in Iowa or Wisconsin or Illinois, Minnesota, Kansas, all those areas that I've hunted, you know, I always got excited to be in a stand. I would always hunt the opening week or opening few days, especially if I had something patterned to like a green source, like clover, alfalfa, or turnips or something. But then I would not really, unless there was a cold front that moved in, that, you know, a big weather change, I wouldn't get too excited about hunting. I would kind of save my mental capacity for during that Halloween week is when I started to go. And I would go mornings and evenings for a few hours. And then once I start to see a big deer on his feet, on a doe, which, you know, it kind of normally happens within those first five days of November, at that point, it's it's on. And from there all the way through Thanksgiving, I know that being in the tree all day could produce at any given time. And it's very unlikely that if you're in a tree here in the Midwest for a full day for seven days, there's just, it's hard unless you're, you know, unless you're just not in the right spots, it's hard to say that you're not going to see a buck because that is the time. So spending a lot of time when it's not the right time can certainly be frustrating, man. I would recommend you kind of limit when you're going or you need to just mentally tell yourself right now that you're not seeing something simply because you're just not there at the right time and that's how it is so i appreciate the appreciate the um message though man good luck to you hopefully you get one um next question here is from daniel 92179 And he says, I've started fletching my own arrows lately. I have blazer veins, max hunter veins, and max stealth veins. I mainly just shoot with friends or for fun and have the max hunter veins for my broadhead arrows. How can I tell if my veins are clearing my QAD rest or not? I've heard you talk about it a lot, but I don't know how to tell. Are Are either of those veins better for shooting um, 3D targets or will I notice a difference? We usually just shoot to 60 yards at the most. So there's a lot of questions within that. I would personally say based off what you're shooting, um, you know, it'd be nice if you're also hunting as well to where you can kind of shoot the same setup. That three inch max stealth vein uh, is a very good overall vein. It's what I'm shooting. It's what I shoot for my indoor arrows. When I go outdoor, I'll shoot the um, Pro Max, which is a much shorter vein than anything that you talked about. But that's really specific to a 3D uh, vein. Now, 
back to your air rest and clearing, one thing that you can do, and this is really important because um, a big part of me working on a new aero rest design right now is also focused on clearance, proper clearance and making sure that the rest isn't either not going down or bouncing back up um, or in some cases not coming up. But what you want to do is take some lipstick, put the lipstick on the edge of your vein. So, you know, put it on the highest profile part of your vein go ahead and put some lipstick down that um, on all three veins and shoot it through your bow and you'll be able to see if there's red lipstick scraping across somewhere it's going to mark it it's going to mark your arrow rest or it's going to mark on your cables um, all that good stuff i've even seen it on the d loop for people that have a D loop and they never get their D loop and string twisted the correct way. So the D loop spins around is like hitting the arrow before it even uh, comes off the string. So lipstick works good. Uh, another thing you can do is, um, which I probably don't totally recommend, but you could do foot spray on the whole inside of your riser. And then when you shoot, you can tell where it's actually scraped it off, but Lipstick on the vein works really, really good for that. Um, QADs, if you don't have them set up right, sometimes they don't go down. I've seen that happen. Um, you want to make sure that when you draw that back and you look at your little cocking device, um, there should be a white line on there, and then there's another white line right next to it. At full draw, both of those white lines should be perfectly aligned. If they're not, then that means the length of your cord uh, for the rest is either too long or too short. So you need to make sure that those two lines are perfectly even at full draw. Um, but that should do it. Appreciate the question, Daniel. I uh, hope I answered it for you the right way. Let's see. Next question here is from J.T. Ice. Or maybe it's J Tice, or maybe it's JTI C87, but I'm gonna go with JT Ice 87. I like that. Iceman. Uh, okay, says I'm listening to Podcast 78 this morning, and you're discussing engineering that goes into bows and cams. I was looking to get a new bow and was looking into the expedition. I was wondering if you had any experience with them. Also, any updates on the releases? Um, releases, I'm not allowed to talk about. Sharon told me I can't talk about it, but wink, wink. Uh, I didn't that I would I didn't say that. Patience, grasshoppers were eagerly wanting to get these going to you. Believe me. Um, let's see. So first part of the question, I have not shot expedition bows. Um, one of my good buddies, Chris wall down in Georgia. Hey, Chris, if you're listening, uh, love that dude. Don't get to see him enough. Wish, wish, wish his, uh, lake house was right here in Des Moines, Iowa area. I'd be traveling there to use that boat of his and his wakeboards and all that stuff and his margarita machine. 
Um, but he has shot him, and he had quite a few good things to say about him. But I personally haven't shot him. Um, don't know anything about him. I know that um, the people that bought the company don't return calls. That I do know. So I um, hope that helps you out. And you can always look up Chris Wall. That's Chris with a K, K-R-I-S-W-A-L-L. Hey, Chris, guess what? You're going to have Facebook messages coming, dude. Um, He shot one, and that's the only guy I know that has, so he can tell you what he thinks. Or he can maybe just post a thing on his Facebook page telling people what he does think about them because I just threw him under the bus. Um, Okay, so Bad Weather Whitetail now is asking a question two questions actually have you ever tried a g5 havoc two blade mechanical broadhead i know you like a short ferrule with a cam open blade and wasn't sure if you'd tested them in the past yeah i've shot havocs um i've shot several generations of them um i shot several animals with them as well years ago in the early development stages and um they work good yeah um don't i'm a I'm an actual, well, I'm going to jump into this other question um, just because it relates. So a lot of my choices on broadheads come down to the actual, either how blades go in or how blades stay in, or especially on a fixed blade, when I tighten the broadhead down, if the blades are in this exact same position to where the broadhead can then spin perfectly square on the shaft. Same thing with um, mechanical heads. There's ones that I like, ones that I don't. Mainly how they're either kept shut um, or how they're the collars that are on them, those types of things, all make it, they all factor into my decision. Um, like, for example, I did test the Schwackers this year. I think I talked about this earlier. Definitely, they flew good and they opened up and cut a cool hole. But I actually was on a hog hunt and I was going to use one. And I think I had I had two of them stuffed up in my quiver and I ended up stalking in on a hog and I missed it. I totally missed the hog. I really had no idea what happened. Looked back at the video footage and I actually can see as I'm drawing the bow back, there's no yellow rubber band thing well it's not even a rubber band it's like a piece of plastic that slides over the end there was none even on the blade and the blade had fallen open the one you know gravity just dropped that thing down the other one was actually stayed shut because it was pointing straight up so gravity was holding that one shut but the other one was hanging right down it was pretty dangerous so i was i was uh i was out after that i didn't like that but i think there were you know, in all fairness to them, I know a lot of people use them and like them, but I think what happened was they were in my quiver and they might've been in there a little too far and the, the blades were starting to open and kind of stretched that little rubber collar thing. So, and they might've got cold that way. And then when I took the arrow out of the quiver and loaded it, my bow was pointing down. I think that collar just slid right off the arrow. Um, I know that if I had them in my quiver too hard, then maybe that's my fault, but I know they weren't in there way too hard, and I also know that the reality is sometimes when you're running and gunning as a bow hunter, 
you take your arrow out of your quiver and you think you have a shot, then you got to put it back in and reposition and put it back. I really don't like any type of head or any type of quiver for that matter where I have to really be that delicate with putting my broadheads in my quiver. I'm really not into that. Um, so I'm going to jump in to this. Well, yeah, because this next question is kind of complex. I want to jump over to this other uh, question that I got here. Let me find it because... Okay, so Zach Kemmer from Facebook sent me a message and I knew that this was on the same topic after I read this one, but he said, I picked up a pack, a package of hypo plus peas. So rage hypodermic plus peas after your elk video. Um, I bought, I had bought 36 Ulmer edges, um, before they deleted them and went to 125 grain. So this hypodermic is my hundred grain option now the collars were tricky at first to have the blades stick out consistently but then i got it why doesn't the hypo okay so well he says why doesn't the hypo tip have a sharp edge on it i personally don't like having a sharp edge on the tip of my broadhead unless it's an actual full cut on impact style broadhead having a small little blade on the front of your tip of your thing it minimizes penetration you really want a good point but you want a hard point to where it hits bone cracks it and breaks it and that's pretty much what you saw in that video and you can see the video of my rage plus p on the youtube the knock on archery youtube account um there's a video called uh, well, I remember I put that it was graphic. I remember that part, but I don't know. Oh yeah. Graphic video of rage hypodermic plus P. Um, you can see that on my webpage, but what I want to say is what I like about the shock or the collar on the um rage is and this is important why i wanted to talk about this the collar on the rage it actually has little slots in it and those slots are because each of those slots allows for a little tab and that tab is supposed to fold back and break off as the broadhead sliding open when you put the collar on your rage hypodermics you don't want to slide one of the slots between the blade. Like you don't want the blade going in that slot. The collar should be turned so that the, where it where it wraps around the back of the blade, that there should be little slits on either side of the blade, but you don't want your blade down in the slit. That's not how it's designed. It's designed for the slits to be on either side of the blade so that the blade is actually getting held in by the tab. And as you shoot, it actually bends that tab back and breaks off. And there's six tabs 
on the shock collar in a circle. And this allows you to shoot that same collar multiple times if you want to. Like if you want to practice with it, you can shoot it and it'll break just two of the tabs off. Then you can loosen it. You can turn that collar, you know, 30 to uh, 30%. You can put it in there again. But I really like how the collar works and I love how, um, I just love the tension. I think it's a perfect amount of tension. The thing that I didn't like about the Havocs, or at least the original ones that I had shot, and that's why I'm, you know, mentioned this question here uh, because we were talking about the Havocs, is I, I kind of had some times w- with those spider collars where on some of the original ones I was having some issues with once those met that metal bent, um, sometimes there was inconsistency in some blades would open easier than others whereas with these collars i just find that the consistency is much much better um the second part of your question bad weather whitetail is do you recommend bare shaft tuning for compound bows with the release aid um i haven't heard you talk about it on the podcast so bare shaft tuning that's a pretty in-depth um, subject all on its own. And yeah, I don't think there's anything bad about it. I certainly think that you can learn a lot about your arrow spine and your match of your arrow spine with your bow. If you're bear shaft tuning, um, and you certainly need to do it with the release aid. If you're ever bear shaft tuning, you have to do it exactly how you're going to be shooting it. Um, your bow should be set up exactly the same, your rest, everything. The only difference is you don't have fletches on your arrow, but you do want to make sure that you add something to the back of the arrow to make up for the amount of weight of your cresting or your fletching. Because if you bear shaft tune with no fletch and you haven't added some weight to the back of the shaft, then it's not a proper way of bear shaft tuning because you don't the arrow the foc of the arrow is not the same so you need to what i would do is i would take like masking tape or even some duct tape and put it around the back i would take the tape first Um, you can either wrap masking tape around that back of that shaft try to keep it small you don't want it big enough to where it ends up contacting your rest but you want you can find tape that'll be the exact same uh, weight as what your fletchings are, um, and that'll really really help you out. You could also take like duct tape's heavier. You can tear a piece off and lay it on a scale and try to get the weight where you need it, and then just roll that on. Works pretty good too. Uh, but yeah, I don't have a problem with bear shaft testing. I kind of like bear shaft testing. Uh, but it is a whole new process, and I think I've had times where I've had perfect bear shaft tunes where I can shoot a bear shaft at you know 30, 40 yards and flies awesome, shoot a, just one single dot through paper. But I've also had bows where I've done that, and they haven't been bows that have grouped as good as a different arrow combination. So I really go off groups. I'm a firm believer in uh the hill method for really fine tuning your arrow spine and matching it to your bow which i've got articles on the hill method and i think i on this year's knocked and ready to rock segment i talk about the hill method as well um so 
I need to, well, I'm trying to sit on the Nocturnator Rock segment. There should be, well, they're not live yet, but the remaining Knocked and Ready to Rock segments should be coming, and the Hill Method will be on there, um, which is a great a great method for sure. Let's see. We're going to move on here. Um, Zach Stinks is saying, thanks for the podcast. Oh, I wanted to ask you if you had any scent control suggestions. I've tried a few different laundry treatments, field sprays and such, but I'm not sure how to tell a difference between if they actually work. Um, if you have time to talk about that, it'd be great. So this is kind of a cool subject because I've never really talked about scent control. And obviously your scent as a hunter is critical, but I've also almost got to the point where you know, if you're elk hunting or if you're bear hunting and, you know, you're in these camps, it just gets impossible impossible to be scent free. Um, I can tell you for my, I do wash in a scent free soap. I, I just use the green hunter specialty soaps. I've used them for longer than I can remember. So I just keep using those. And... I use, I actually go to Walmart and I buy the Arm & Hammer unscented deodorant. It's in a yellow stick. Or I also have just in the last four days, I've been using this sweet new um, deodorant from Onnit. So you can go to onnit.com and they actually have trying to see where it'll be here uh okay so for onit.com i'm a i'm a onit geek right now like super geeked out with onit stuff um awesome products totally cutting edge they've got you go to personal care and then you go down to right there the onit cedar fresh deodorant i went with cedar because I've got cedars here, and it's awesome. I, I love the smell of cedar almost as much as I love those. Um, kind of addicted to those HS Earth scent wafers. Those earth wafers. I don't know why, but I love that dirt smell. I That's actually my... Um, Sharon hates it. But what's funny is, and maybe this kind of says that maybe, maybe I am overboard as a hunter, but... Um, I don't use the earth wafers when I hunt just because I don't like to introduce like foreign smells, so to speak. But I will say that I actually buy boatloads of earth wafers and they're, they're actually what I put in my cars. I just, (laughs) I love the smell of dirt. So, um, I can tell you from a scent preventative point of view, I do like that HS body wash it's the green stuff you can get it anywhere and that on it cedar deodorant there's like no it's not bad for you it's it's like natural deodorant which is really important and it smells like cedar otherwise i use um otherwise i use that arm and hammer it's in a yellow thing you can get it at walmart and get the unscented it's just like pure baking soda works 
as good as anything that you paid twice the money for at a store, three times the money for. Um, and then from there, I want to talk just for a second about Ozonics. I here's the deal: they're not a sponsor. I don't have an affiliation with them. Christian Berg talked me into getting an Ozonics like three years ago, and at the same exact time that he did this guy that I was hunting with in Montana, he was just geeked out about how well this Ozonics worked when he was sitting in a ground blind for deer. He he just couldn't believe that. He said, you know, if you use it the way they say, the deer just, I got deer all the way around me. This thing works so cool. And as he was telling me that, at the same time, Christian Berg was telling me that he hunted with the guys from Ozonics and said, you know, I talked to them about you and they really want you to try one. So they sent one. Um, and I was excited about the concept behind Ozonics because it creates an ozone and it showers this ozone and the ozone is supposed to attach to your scent molecule. So, you know, naturally you're going to have your smell, but it, it attaches to that smell and, and changes it. But what I really liked about it is as the type of hunting that I do, I know that I cannot always, I can't keep my backpack clean. I can't keep my cameras clean and it's impossible to keep your bow clean from scent. So I just like the concept of you're going to have scent on that equipment. You're not going to be able to spray all the scent uh, or eliminate the scent. So I like the fact that there is scent coming off, but there's a product that like showers it. But with that said, I gave that Ozonics probably about a week's try here in the Midwest. And um, it's hard enough as it is filming myself to go out with a camera arm and a base and a camera. And then, you know, you got your bow and now I've got an Ozonics too. So to take out and remember to charge that battery and take it out and then screw that in the tree and all that stuff. And I can say that it didn't, I wasn't seeing the results that I was expecting. So I just quit using it and kind of just never looked back. I've just, I was to the point where I gave up on scent control. Um, and I just play the wind. I play the wind right. And I think, I think scent control, I think if you're really super geeked out about it, it, it can help you because the less offensive you are, the more likely the animals are to not really think that you're on top of them. That I do believe, but I don't feel I don't feel like you can, even if you're a hundred percent conscious, scent conscious. I don't feel like you're going to be able to fool a herd of thirty elk. You know, it's just really not going to happen. One might not recognize it, but the other twenty nine are definitely someone's going to be in on it. But now that I've made that full disclaimer, I'm going to go to Oklahoma the first week of October. My buddy Eric Gudgel, who we talked about yesterday, he is like he should be the poster boy for Ozonics and the poster boy for, you know, HS strut scent sprays and stuff because he had the Ozonics closet hanging he'd keep his clothes in there he kept his bow in there his camera in there he would wash 
before he went out to stand, he'd spray down. He had the Ozonics in the stand, and he shot. And I, it, it, I had to question it because he shot a totally mature mid hundred or a hundred and sixty inch whitetail, and I know because I was there. The thing came exactly dead downwind of him and his camera guy, Jimmy. And Jimmy's just like, God, she's all geeked out on scent control too. And they both kind of made me feel like I, was, I wasn't I was worthy of being around guys that smelled so fresh. But I, on the other hand, got smelled several times. Over the course of a few days, I was getting smelled mainly because where we were, we didn't have, it's not like my spots here in Iowa where I really have set up for different types of wind directions. When you go on hunts and you're hunting with people, and especially when there's multiple guys, you're just limited on where people can go. So unfortunately, we're breaking the rules of there were times where my wind was not ideal, but I had to just go and give it a try. And I was getting smelled in those situations. Well, several of the uh, of our other buddies that were there, one of them was Scott. Um, he was having the same thing. He had an Ozonix and he was like, dude, I got deer all over me, like all around me. And then another one of my buddies, Wesley went and filmed, uh, well, he was trying to film someone shoot a buck, but guess what? Wesley doesn't know how to hit record. So he totally missed the shot. But anyway, they were in a blind. They had an Ozonic. Same thing. All the deer were exactly downwind of them. So I ended up saying, okay, Eric, will you throw my gear in your little hanging closet thing and ozone this stuff? And I said, let me borrow your Ozonics. So I took out the Ozonics. I went to a stand with a in a river bottom, and it wasn't a favorable wind. And... All this, I had two Ozonics in the tree, and they were going because I had one for me and one for my camera guy. And all of a sudden, here comes deer downwind, and they're just like coming, and they're not even—I mean, they're not even phased. And I had a floaters. I had my normal floaters and stuff. My wind is going right to them, and they're just coming out. And they came by. I bet I had seen. 30 something deer then all of a sudden i hear some some hogs i look behind me and here comes some hogs and these are the you know i posted the two hogs that i shot because i boogered up that hunt but i ended up shooting one hog and when i shot him the rest of them ran off and all of them ran behind me and were sitting right downwind of me and then just started to go about feeding again and then they ended up coming back around the front of me and I shot a second boar and those hogs ran off. Well then about 30 minutes later another batch of hogs there was probably six or eight of them came in and walked exactly 20 yards from the base of my tree exactly downwind and the lead hog kind of hit my trail and kind of did the mmm like that, like, mm, what is this? But then just realized, okay, it's not a person. And then just, they kept, they just came right through. And I'm telling you, they came in, they fed. There was like, 
they weren't alarmed. So this is no lie. I literally left that stand and I text Christian and I said, dude, I have to get another Ozonics. I feel like I literally feel like maybe I wasn't doing it right or it wasn't working. So with that said, if you really want to be, if you want to go through all the steps, which it's hard for me to, I think if you use that scent-free soap, if you, that Ozonics, I'm telling you, I want to be a skeptic. I really do, but freaking thing worked for like two different groups of whitetails and it worked for two or three different groups of hogs so there's just no way i can say that that wasn't working so that's i came home and i ordered i got hopefully it'll be here today i got ozonics and i got that closet thing i'm gonna put that in my truck and i'm gonna keep my gear or I'm going to put my gear in that sucker on the way to my stand and let the ozone blast it. And I guess we'll see whether or not uh, I'm just another guy geeking out on on gear. But it made a believer out of me. I'm not lying to you guys. They're not a sponsor. I'm just telling you. He shot a huge deer totally downwind. And I've never had hogs come downwind to me and not absolutely freak out so it made a believer the hogs were the hogs above all were like okay i there's no way i can say that they're not you know that this isn't working right now because it was so that's that um i got a few more questions i want to hit here before we wrap up uh one of them his name is Karul fadley and he's saying how many arrows per end should we shoot for one end for training? How many arrows per day? And so this is probably specific to target archery. Um, I'm just going to say it really depends on what you're shooting for. Um, if you're sh- if you're going to be shooting a full feeder where you know you're going to be shooting 144 arrows a day for competition, then I've always... I've always found that I want to shoot more arrows per end simply because I have to shoot six scoring arrows per end. So, and it, like in field archery, if you're shooting five arrows per end, you know, this also weighs in. What I always like to do is I like to shoot one or two more arrows than what I will during tournament time because. A lot of times in a tournament, you'll draw back, you'll hold, your shot won't be what you want, so you let down, you cancel the shot. If the wind's like really howling and you draw back and it's blowing you off the target and you got to let down a few times. If you aren't trained to be able to, for your body to feel good shooting or drawing back more arrows per end than what you're used to, then you'll start to fatigue. And even on a simple round, like an indoor Vegas round, people that only get in the habit of just shooting three arrows per end and then pulling and then three arrows per end, what happens is when you get to a tournament like Vegas and you draw back a few times and you're really nervous and you end up letting down, well, 
then all of a sudden you're shooting a five arrow end instead of a three arrow end that you're training for. And by the time you've let down several times, you're almost just as at risk of missing just because of not being used to the repetition. So I like to shoot more for 3D. I would always shoot three arrows at a time just because same exact reason. Uh, For Vegas, a lot of times when I'm training for Vegas rounds, I'll actually have two Vegas faces up. So I'll shoot, if I'm just getting in my reps, I'll shoot double what I'm trying for. So I think if you're shooting at least nine arrows per end, if you're getting ready for outdoor FIDA, or there were certainly times when I did a lot of training for 90 meters, I got to the point where I was shooting 12 arrows per end. You might want to keep multiple targets down there if possible because you start to really damage a lot of arrows. And this is really important just from a safety point of view. A lot of people get hurt because of improper either inspection of arrows or installation of arrows or they're just ramming arrows together between ends. I know that... um, Man, the last year that I was competing, I know that myself, Dave Cousins, Braden Gillenthien, and Dave uh, and Rio Wild, we were consistently on targets together. And when we were all sharing the same target, and there's four guys that are all, you know, 1,400 capable shooters crushing arrows in the targets we went through so many arrows and knocks and pins and you really have to get in the habit of inspecting those and if you see any damage don't even risk it throw it away um you know hitting and whacking knocks like knocks even slapping together can cause a fracture in them and that's why i really like to shoot any of the knocks that were clear i always shot the green knocks because i could really see hairline fractures in the knock easier Um, if you're shooting a black knock especially on some of the smaller diameter arrows black knocks or the dark blue knocks or the yellow you just don't see those hairline fractures and and i personally don't like that when i'm crushing arrows together a lot Um, this actually ties right in i'm going to go ahead and just jump on another question just for a second here Um, because it's on this same exact subject and it's from Josh Anderson. He said, uh, Hey dad, he said, um, pretty much tells me what arrows he's shooting or he tells me he's shooting 84 pounds, 27, 28 inch draw, uh, Easton 300 FMJs and, um, inserts are 70 grains with a hundred grain head. So it's a, big heavy arrow so you're shooting very close to what joe rogan's shooting and he's saying will the nocturnal knocks hold up first time i shot them three or so years ago they split on the first shot and i haven't trusted them since so here's the thing i shoot nocturnals every day i every day and i know joe does too he even told me hates he hates practicing without lighted knocks like isn't as fun um i can tell you this is important because it does relate to that last question. With Whenever you install a new knock, especially 
a lighted knock because a lighted knock is not completely solid. It's got a battery and an LED inside of it, so it's not a solid structure. So you, you're, it's easier to damage them. What you have to do, and this was kind of my public service announcement on my Instagram storyline the other day, was you should always, anytime you replace knocks, you need to take a little bit of string wax and put it on the wrap, roll the knock around the wax on the bottom part of the knock, and then install it into your arrow. It'll go in 10 times easier. You can index a knock, or in other words, you can turn the knock without it like popping and clicking. The other thing, too, is if you need to ever index your knock to where your veins are pointing the way you want, you shouldn't get in the habit of snapping your knock on your string and then grabbing the front of your arrow and reefing the arrow around in order to turn it because you spread that knock apart and you weaken that knock, and you're definitely apt for for failure no question about it and on any lighted knock if you just jam those suckers in there or like put it on your string and force it in or bite on it and turn it in you're almost certainly going to crack a knock now if you're a decent shooter and you're slapping knocks together also if you know that you're slapping knocks together that pounding can create stress fractures but what's most important is put wax on there. Also, Nocturnal makes a knock tool. It's a little yellow tool. It allows you to turn the knock off if you want. And you, what's nice about it is how nice the knock slides into this little tool. And you can turn it and install it without doing any damage to the back legs of that knock. So, Josh, 100% trust him. It's 100% important you follow that protocol that I just said, though. Back to Mr. Fadley's question here. Um, I personally like to shoot more per end. When it comes to actual repetitions per day, it really depends. If you're, you know, you have to judge that for yourself and know how much you're actually going to be competing and shooting. Again, if you're going to a tournament and you know that you're going to shoot 144 um scoring arrows i'm sure you're going to have 30 minutes of practice Um, you're also probably going to practice the day before the tournament if you get there the day before so you know that you're going to be shooting at least 160 or 170 arrows at that tournament so if all you've ever been doing is shooting 100 arrows then by the time you do your practice well you've already used up 30 percent of what you are used to doing at home so you know it it in a way it's it'd be equivalent to if i was going to vegas and i and i shot vegas rounds but i never really shot a full one like say i only ever shot exactly 30 arrows a day well then you go to vegas you get two practice ends then you all then you have your scoring end so those extra six arrows for a lot of people is kind of when you end up breaking down you win or lose a tournament normally in those last three to four ends of any tournament and it comes down to that fatigue so that's how i do it i don't set a specific number of arrows i normally just try to continue shooting if i'm shooting good i shoot if i'm not shooting good then i try to not reinforce bad habits but repetition is important if you're just 
if you're not necessarily holding well or if it's a real crappy weather day out and there's a lot of wind and you know you don't want to reinforce bad habits then just get in front of a blank bale and just go through repetitions just shooting 12 arrows at a time in a blank bale getting used to that rhythm and and that pull through and really good things are going to happen uh, next question here is from Mandy Raybuck. Uh, Mandy's saying, John, are the heads on the simple one and the knock-on, um, knock-two at the same length? I prefer a shorter head, but also have been using your coaching tips and trying my simple one out again, but with a, the different technique. Um, I'm applying the flat hand and the barrel rotated back more. The shots are breaking really nice, and I'm hitting consistently right in the center. Um, or I'm okay. Going back, my shots are breaking nice, but I'm hitting consistently right of center. However, with my index release, it hits dead center. What can cause this? So to answer the last part of your question first. Depending on how the jaw opens on a release will really depend on where you have to sight in because that changes how it comes off the string. So like for example, um, the Carter has an index finger called the RX. There's an RX1 and an RX2. There's also a quickie one and a quickie two. Both of them, the jaws either open in towards the face or other ones open out away from the face. Depending on which way the jaw opens, you will have to adjust your left and right adjustment slightly because of how it comes off. Same is true with a a, a, hit, a hook release. You know, if one opens slightly, if one opens down and one opens up, you know, it just really depends which way that hook flips. It can certainly change how you're going to have to sight in for your left and right, and that's important because for people that move back and forth between releases. You know, another thing too is a single jaw, like a single hook that opens just on one side, it can have a different left and right impact is like a release that has two, like a kind of a claw where they both open up and it goes out of the middle. So you really have to pay attention to that. You certainly, it's not a problem. One's not better than the other. You just do need to recognize you're going to have to sight in for one and not the other. Um, as for the releases, the simple one is a little bit shorter than um, the simple one is definitely the shortest head that Carter makes. Um, the knock to it is a little bit longer. It's not quite as long as say a Target Four, but it's right in that same category as like a Just Cause. Um, and now the Silverback is exactly the same. Uh, for those of you listening to this podcast who haven't listened to another, I did load a YouTube video on the Knock on Archer YouTube channel that is called, you want to check it out, you can see it's called Knock to It and Silverback Release Setup slash First Look. Um, it pretty much shows you these two releases exactly, the head lengths, all that good stuff. So, Hopefully you can, um, those will help answer your questions, Mandy. Appreciate it, and good luck shooting. Last question here. i got to get rolling. Um, I'm going to go with Sean Prucknick, I believe is how I'm pronouncing his name. Hey, Sean, thanks, dude, for sending me a message. And by the way, for those of you who I haven't answered your messages, I apologize. I'm trying my best, and um, 
I know there's a lot of really old messages that I'm really trying to get through on my Facebook pages. And just so you know, um, going back to a question I answered earlier, like how do I get through sitting in my stand 12 hours a day? Guess what? It's called answering old messages. I'm always caught up by the end of November. I'm caught up 100% on thousands of messages. Um, It doesn't mean you should send me more, but it does mean I'll be caught up and I won't be the guy that doesn't answer someone's message. Um, So last question here, Sean, thanks for sending in. Um, Following your broadhead test for elk, Following your broadhead test for elk, fortunately for me, I guess, I also spent the last four to five days um, shooting with different arrow fletching configurations, trying to decide on a muzzy trocar or rage hypodermic. My question to you is, do you have complete confidence in the hypos for elk, even at the extended ranges? Trocars are my choice, however are just a bit less forgiving. I love the hypodermics for ear. Any opinion would be greatly appreciated. So a lot of that, man, is going to come down to what type of arrow you're shooting, speed, and also what type of distance are you talking when you say longer ranges. I mean, are you talking triple digits? you talking 40? I mean, what are you talking here? So if you're shooting a, a good heavy arrow, then obviously that that momentum is going to factor in and it's going to help drive anything through. You know, I've had this conversation many times and it's almost like it's almost an endless one of the mechanical versus the fixed blade. You know, there's times where I wish I had a fixed blade where it was in the animal and as that arrow stayed in that animal for a long time on a marginal hit, that broadhead would have continually done work and continued to cut and do more damage and keep that blood channel going. Whereas, you know, with the mechanical, a lot of times it's not going to continue to cut after it's done its initial shot you know a lot of times the blades are going to flip back you're not allowed to have barbed barbed blades so there's i mean it's just this is one of those things where there's no correct answer and i can tell you that i definitely have confidence in the hypodermic i mean i i made a i made a not a good shot on a moose two years ago you know, it was a quartering shot. There was one I had held for a long time. Two, there was a crosswind. Um, it was a quartering shot. I was definitely further left than I want. And I literally went through that moose from like high end in all the way to the knock. And on a moose, that penetration is very impressive. And it was instantly well i shouldn't say instant but it was it was deadly that moose um although the shot looked terrible that moose went like 70 or 80 yards and was done i mean it like when when we started following the blood trail we were actually and we weren't even following blood originally because the arrow and fletching was pretty much jammed up in that entry channel we were just following, you can see where a moose runs. It's not like they're light on their feet. So we were just following tracks and I'm like kind of looking for tracks and then dang near flipped over the moose. It was that close. So it took me by surprise. I a hundred percent have 
confidence in it, but I also know if you're shooting a lighter arrow, then you're going to be better with a fixed blade head, a more compact fixed blade head. If you're shooting a light arrow at a longer distance at a bigger animal, I mean, that's just how it's going to be. Um, it does take a little more kinetic energy to open a mechanical, but there's benefits to it. You know, I, I often say if I make a marginal shot, unless the arrow's stuck in the animal and it's stuck there halfway in and it's going to stay in, then I would, in that case, I'd want a fixed blade head. If I hit the animal further back than what I would want, I would always want a mechanical head, bigger cut, you know, especially if you're anything behind the liver, that bigger cut mechanical always is going to be more favorable. The only thing, um, well, arguably shoulders, arm bones, you know, they're not as favorable. There's certainly certain broadheads that definitely take more kinetic energy to open. I can tell you, you can see on that video I talked about earlier, the damage my hypodermic did to that elk leg was mind-blowing and then i also posted a video of a shot that i made on like a 300 pound boar with a monster front shield plate i mean a monster shield plate it was like you could hit it with a hammer and it sounded like you're hitting a, a an oak tabletop um i went in it 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 goes in and i'm shooting a 29 and a half inch arrow so i've got a long arrow but it went in and actually hit the shield on the other side and just stopped like instantly but it was a perfect heart shot. The hog was just down quick, but it did not pass all the way through. Now, the second hog that I shot, which I didn't show that kill, it was almost identical. Like where the hog was, it was the same size of hog, but it was just slightly, ever so slightly turned quartering to me. And when I hit it, I hit it I swear it was the exact same spot as the first hog, but when it hit and it came and it went to the opposite side, it went to the back edge of the shield, not in contact with the shield on the opposite side, and that arrow went right through. So there's a huge difference. If you're shooting a super heavy arrow and you've got decent poundage on your bow, I wouldn't sweat the hypodermic one bit. Um, but... If you're shooting a light arrow, if you're like kind of a light, fast type of guy, then I would certainly say you probably want to keep it close. Last year on the elk that I shot um, in Alberta, it's on one of the season six knock on TV episodes. Um, that bull I shot at like 30 yards and I was only shooting 50 pounds and I shot a rage hypodermic. I was shooting an ACC, I believe, an ACC 360 at like 50, maybe it was 55 pounds because I was still recovering from my shoulder. But once again, it went through, it actually went through the golden triangle, through the scapula, and then hit the opposite side arm, and that bull was done in seconds as well. So, man, it's been a sweet podcast. I uh, wanted to get caught up on these ones that I had, kind of screenshotted copied and pasted so to speak so appreciate all you guys and man i hope you guys all do success whether you're prepping for target archery or whether you're getting out there and sitting in a stand now uh get it done appreciate it thanks everybody for the support talk to you later knock on mm -hmm.
Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com